forgot about the microphone thing. Um, well, if you would, please take your Bibles and remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading from, from Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 23. And it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the, the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. You may be seated. This morning we want to remember Patty Morris, who has been serving as a missionary in France and is actually wrapping her time up there and preparing to come back home. And so we want to uh, be sure to pray for her in this transition period. Lord, we come to you this morning and 
We want to see you in your majesty, in your awesomeness, and in your greatness. God, we confess that too often we think too little of you, or we come before you in too casual of a manner. But God, you are genuinely the greatest. You are the one that holds all things together. You spoke all things into existence, and you hold not only our lives, but our eternal souls in your hands. God, would you give us eyes to see and to understand who you are in greater magnitude. And God, that as we understand that, that we would come to a greater sense and awareness of the magnitude of our sin that is rebelled, not just by the actions that we have done, but by who we have done them against. And God, when we come to grips with the reality that we have sinned against an infinitely great God and that our sin is worthy of an infinite death. God, we have no hope other than the reality that God came to earth to die in the flesh. And God, that you bore our sins in our place. And God, that we can come and, and uh, put faith in Jesus knowing that he paid the penalty for our sins, an infinite sacrifice worthy of our infinite punishment. And so, God, as we come and understand this Christmas season and we understand that Jesus was born not just as a baby in a manger, but as a baby who would grow up to pay our penalty, God, may we be filled with gratitude and worship and hope in our risen Savior. And so, do that in our hearts this morning to help us to see that reality more this morning. God, we thank you for Patty and for her desire to serve you and to proclaim you and to be used by you in France for all of these years. Would you give her encouragement and strength as she completes that portion of what you have called her to and transitions back here? Would you give her joy in knowing what you have done through her? God, we commit her to you and we commit this time this morning to you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. i mm-hmm. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for the beautiful words that we have just sang. You are the long-expected king. You're the desire of every nation, the hope of every longing soul, every longing heart. And Lord, we pray that you would satisfy us in your love this morning, that your word would pierce our hearts, and that you would um, work in us so that you would exalt yourself and we would see your greatness and your glory this morning. We pray all of this in your wonderful name. Amen. Well, you couldn't have approached Jesus any more differently than Herod and the wise men. Like night and day, black and white, hate and love, wrong and right. Uh, what a drastic difference between Herod and the wise men. Herod did evil, wise men good. It's Christmas, we are looking at the true Messiah and making our way through Matthew 1 and 2 and we looked at his sinful family tree. We looked at his startling incarnation. Um, looking ahead to Christmas Eve, we'll be in Luke 2, his spectacular birth, and Christmas Day, his sovereign glory. But today, his sinister opposition. We're looking at Matthew 2, 1 to 23, the whole chapter. It is a, a real-life account of what happened after Jesus was born. And Matthew is painting this, this heart-stirring but very uh, threatening picture. And, and what you see is that Herod uh, was sinisterly opposed to Christ. It reminds us of how sinful we are. And also it reminds us how delightfully glorious Christ is. Uh, some people think that Christmas is not the time for serious discussion about sin. They'll say, hey, keep it light and comforting. Uh, the Spirit of God had other ideas gets into the nitty-gritty of Jesus being worshipped, but then a murderous king on a rampage. As we work our way through this narrative, we see quite clearly there are wise men coming to worship Jesus. And a foolish king hatches a sinister plot to kill Jesus, but the wise men worship him. They actually do what they came to do, and, and then God and his parents keep protecting him from this king, but the king thinks that he is actually killing Jesus and kind of, you know, leaves uh, the scene thinking, yeah, I, I was successful, but, but Jesus gets resettled again and nothing is going to stop God's sovereign plan. That's what we'll see in this passage. Uh, you probably are well aware of, of the narrative, but the idea here that no one will prevail against God and his perfect plans, even though people try, even though the nations rage, uh, the opposition to the perfect son of God happened long uh, before he appeared on the scene as a baby on this planet, uh, yet Herod's fury against him was ruthless. But first it starts with wise men coming to worship Jesus. Verse 1, Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. And the way it's worded, after he had been born in Bethlehem of Judea, uh, this little village on the southern outskirts of Jerusalem, uh, which had been expected to be the Messiah's birthplace, the time frame here just jumps like, like two years. And uh, your nativity scene is set up wrong, okay? Uh, you, you might need to go home and, and put the wise men somewhere else and cut gifts out, off out of their hands or something like this. But the baby here is now a child, and the family is now living in a house, 
uh, six miles south, southwest of Jerusalem. And it was in the days of Herod the king. Now, when you hear the word Herod, you, you've got to go, oh, oh, I know this. I've heard of Herod. But did you know there were six Herods in the New Testament? And three of them were quite prominent. The one here, Christmas Herod, that's Herod the Great. He kind of teed it all off in a, in a, in a really bad way. Uh, his family was a mixed bag of evil. His family tree had many sinister branches. And they had gifting, but they were glory hogs. So these Herods, six of them in the New Testament, three rather prominent. you got Herod the Great, kind of a biggie. Uh, Herod Antipas was another biggie. And then Herod Agrippa I was another biggie. But the six, you got Herod the Great starting it all off. And he ruled from 37 uh, B.C. To, to 4 B.C. He was an Edomite. He was an offspring of Esau. Uh, he's the main Herod in the Gospel accounts. He's Christmas story Herod, if you will. Then you've got Herod Archelaus, son of Herod the Great. This is the, the Herod that Joseph and, and Mary uh, went to Nazareth instead of Bethlehem because of him. Then you have uh, Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, married his brother's wife Herodias. You may have heard of him. He beheaded John the Baptist. You had Herod Philip, who, you know, bad guy too, but there's, we don't know what bad stuff he did. And then you've got Herod Agrippa I, grandson of Herod the Great, uh, and uh, he ruled like the others, like, like he's God, and he uh, got a foul disease and died in agony. He's the one recorded in Acts 12 of being eaten by worms and died. What a family. Uh, Herod Agrippa II as well, uh, the, uh, he was the one at the trial of Paul in Caesarea. So you, you've got these Herods that are all bad. Uh, look, we know baby boys are named uh, Peter and Paul and John and uh, even Jesus, but not Herod. I've never heard of a newborn being named Herod. That trend is not changing anytime soon, right? So Christmas story Herod is who we're dealing with. And after his father's death by poisoning, he was made king of Judea. He was ruthless. He was cunning. He liked opulence. He loved huge building projects. Uh, many of the ancient uh, ruins in modern Israel uh, date back to Herod's time, even now. Uh, there is more, the interesting fact about Herod, more primary evidence about Herod the Great than any other figure in that time, including Jesus, Paul, Caesar Augustus, Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, uh, there, Joseph has had two books on his life, two big scrolls of books on his life. What did he do? He did, he, the guy was a master politician. He rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. He created uh, all on his own, the city of Caesarea. Uh, there was no port, and so he sunk ships to build a base to build the breakwater, and in 12 years, he built Caesarea. Uh, he facelifted all of Jerusalem. It all looked better under him. He built a, a gorgeous palace. He, he built the Hippodrome, the stadium. He built theaters. He had seven uh, outposts, uh, fortresses to defend himself. Most famous, Masada, along the southwest corner of the Dead Sea. But everything he touched literally just turned to diplomatic gold. He was, just, he was a master politician, and he kept the peace with Rome and Jerusalem. So in that sense, people would say, well, he was successful. But he was hated. Everyone hated him because he had this evil side and he was paranoid and it lasted pretty much his whole lifetime and got worse. And if you were around Herod, you probably might get killed. He married a Hasmonean uh, uh, princess, Miriamne, and executed her out of fear. 
He invited, once he invited a high, the high priest down to Jericho for a swim, they had a very rough game of water polo, and he drowned the guy. Um, he killed uncles, he killed sons, he had ten wives, they produced uh, princes that were scheming to be number one on the throne, and he executed his sons Alexander and Aristobulus. This man had no mercy. Five days before he died, he killed his, his oldest son, executed him, Antipater III. He died at his palace in Jericho in March of 4 B.C. He died of a terminal disease. He, he wanted to be healed of it. He went everywhere looking for a cure. Nothing was going to happen. And uh, what he did, though, was before he died, he said, they're, they're going to rejoice when I die. I want them mourning. So I'm going to fill the stadium full of Jewish leaders, and I'm going to have them executed so that my death, people would mourn instead of rejoicing. It was canceled uh, mercifully by his sister, Salome. Herod was a guy who was brought up around Jewish beliefs. He should have believed and practiced faith in the coming Messiah, but he chose evil. In his mind, he was preeminent. In his mind, he was God. He called himself king of the Jews. So, of course, he didn't want any other king of the Jews. Josephus said of him that he was a man who was cruel to all alike one who would easily gave in to anger and was contemptuous of justice. Caesar Augustus famously joked about him that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son, play on Greek words. Herod was a pig, a ruthless swine, and it was in those days. That was the atmosphere in which Jesus was born, and it was in those days that wise men from the east came. In fact, you know that when you see the word behold, you should know, I've said it enough times, when you see the word behold, especially in Matthew, that's, wow, something big is going to happen. Wow, surprise, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. The number of them is not given. Uh, the tradition is there were three because of the kinds of gifts they brought. People even like, try to make up names for them, Gaspar and Melchior and Belshazzar, and the Bible doesn't say their names. They're not kings. They're magi from Persia who had a knowledge of the scriptures. They, they, they would have known Daniel's prophecy of the timeline of a coming Messiah. They would have been uh, knowing uh, Jews that lived in Persia, and, and uh, they, were this, they were this priestly caste. They were followers of uh, Zoroaster, a Persian prophet, and they were leaders in science and astrology and diplomacy and wisdom and religion and magic and uh, where they came from, there was a large colony of Jews that stayed in the east after the exile in Babylon. And so they were exposed to Judaism. They were aware of the Sabbath observance. They were aware of marriage customs. They had come from Babylon. They would have traveled some 900 miles. What a road trip. Now, it could have taken them several months from the time they first saw the star. I mean, you and I, we whine if the drive through takes more than five minutes. Here, they, they go out of their way. Uh, uh, they, they, they come up with a new agenda for what they're doing for like a year. <laughs> Here's what they said when they got to uh, Jerusalem. Verse 2. They said it, and it, it, the way it's, the way it's uh, spoken here, saying they were going to everyone and asking. They're just asking continually, where is he who has been, been born king of the Jews? Like They're like, we're expecting this. Why isn't everybody celebrating What's going on? Where is he? There was a first century expectation of a ruler from Judea. Israel's prophets had spoken of, of peace coming from a future Davidic deliverer. 
And they said, we saw his star in the east when it rose. If you like looking at stars, you might have seen a really bright light, a really bright star in the eastern sky just after dark on December 8th. It wasn't a UFO. It was Mars, big and bright red star rising in the east. Or maybe back in August, you, you thought you saw a, a UFO. No, it was Jupiter. And, and it's the biggest planet in the solar system, the, the second brightest planet next to Venus that we, that we can see with our eyes. And, and the wise men see a star, but they're not seeing planets that we, that we know names of, except if this is the Bethlehem star. This is his star. And, and he's, they're not seeing UFOs. They're not seeing supernovas. They're not seeing a, a collection or a cluster of planets. No, because the way it moved and settled over just one place and led them specifically pinpoint to where Jesus was, it's the supernatural occurrence. It's like the Shekinah glory that God is leading and guiding Israel with in the time of Moses. You can think of it this way. God built our solar system to shine the light on Christ. The God built our solar system and the universe to shine the spotlight on Jesus Christ, his son, our savior, the Lord. The other Jews, they would have most likely known of Daniel's writings, chief of the court seers in Persia, and he included a timeline for the birth of Messiah, and they would have been familiar with Balaam's prophecy in, in Numbers 24, that a star would, would come out of Jacob, a scepter would rise out of Israel. And so they are, they are being guided by God to look for the king of the Jews by this miraculous stellar event star of Bethlehem called his star, and they followed it to Jerusalem, and now they're going to be led to Bethlehem where he was born. In fact, in, in Revelation, Jesus says of himself, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. And there was a reason why they came. It wasn't just curiosity. They wanted to worship Jesus. And they say, we have come from afar, great distance, great expense to us, we've come from afar to worship him. Their motives were pure. They were, they were doing it for the right reasons. They, they, and by the way, this is, this, if you look at Matthew's gospel, these are remarkable bookends to the gospel. At the end of the gospel, you have Jesus telling his people, you go to the ends of the earth with, with the gospel. Here at the beginning when he's born, the nations came to him. Gentiles came to Christ. The world comes to Jesus at his birth and this wonderful indication of the worldwide impact of his life. The wise men are seeking to worship Jesus, but then we see a foolish king hatching a sinister plan against the king. And in verse 3, Herod the king heard about this and he was troubled. The guy's paranoid. And all Jerusalem is kind of upset because Herod's upset. He's disturbed. He's probably fearing an attack. Here's Magi who's probably traveling in a large group with, with an escort to protect the gifts they're bringing. And paranoid Herod is probably thinking, this is a group of invading forces. But he brings the, the chief priests and the scribes together, verse 4, and, and, and he says, where was, is the Christ to be born? The guy should have known. He didn't care. But they told him. They, they knew. The scribes and the Pharisees knew where Jesus was to be born. These chief priests, these teachers of the law, they spent all their day long reading and writing and, and copying scripture down. 
They knew how to interpret the word. They, they, the scribes, the Pharisees, they, they were authorities on Jewish law, but they lacked the faith to go where he was. They weren't going anywhere. Guys had to go 900 miles to come and go, hey, by the way, where's he who's been born king of the Jews? And then Herod's like, hey, tell him where. And they knew, but they didn't have the faith to go. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. They didn't believe the prophet. or They would have been there. Micah called Bethlehem uh, as birthplace of the Messiah, universal expectation at that moment. The small, insignificant village of Bethlehem, the home of Ruth and Boaz, ancestors of David, the birthplace of David. Oh, oh you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's just laden with messianic meaning. It's a prophecy of, Matt, of Micah 5.2. 8th century B.C., declared Messiah's deity. Out of you shall come forth from me, one to rule in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. We're talking about God. He's saying he'd be a ruler to shepherd my people. A ruler, a strong oversight, to shepherd with tender care. Christ was both. In 1 Peter 2.25, for a believer, it says that you come to him, that you return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. But Herod is scheming. Verse 7, he, he secretly summons the wise men and says, what, what time did you see that star? In verse 8, he, he sends them to Bethlehem. Now you go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, I'm going to worship him too. Liar, impure motives. His spiritual condition, very evident. He's conspiring to negate Scripture. He's trying to prove scripture wrong. He's rejecting divine revelation. And, and he, he just says, you, you, you tell me when you find out. Let me know. Well, the wise men, though, you know what they do? They go and they actually worship Jesus. They go and worship Jesus. In verse 9, they, they, they listen to the king and then they go on their way. I mean, imagine what they're saying about this king. What a piece of work. But then it says, behold, the star they'd seen when it rose it went before them literally just moving right over it's like when you're watching the 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 police helicopter and it's got the spotlight and it's just it's like you're not you're not getting out of this (laughs) we found you and and you're gonna have to you know uh, surrender because the light is on you we know where you are and here it just takes you right to the place that's where they went right there just over the place where the child was the supernatural phenomena that God used to herald Christ's birth it appears now and it reappears and it it just moves them to the house that Jesus and his family are in this is not the normal activity of stars so they see the star verse 10 this might be the most beautiful picture of, of, of worship look at this verse 10 when they saw the star they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were very happy because they were close to coming to Jesus to worship him. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were truly happy. Their, their, their journey was about to be successful. And so going into the house, verse 11, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. They fell down on the ground. The the custom in those days was to prostrate yourself before the person and kiss his feet and kiss the hem of his garment and kiss the ground and just go on and on. They did that. 
Mary and Joseph are in the house, not a stable, and toddler Jesus playing with toys and being worshiped. What a holy moment. The young child with his mother, Mary. Joseph isn't even named here because when, when this is about Jesus. When, when Matthew mentions Mary in connection with her child, Christ is always put first. The child and his mother. Four times in this passage. And then they, they open their gifts as part of their worship. They're opening the gifts and they offer him gifts of gold and frankincense and, and myrrh and you're familiar with hearing about those kind of gifts. You're approaching royalty, persons of high political or social status. Gifts were brought to demonstrate worship. When you go to someone's house, when you visit them, you're thinking, I should bring them a gift or a housewarming gift, things like this. Gentiles offered worship and it had prophetic significance. Psalm 72 says, May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him. May all nations serve him. They're doing this and they're bringing gold. It's like then and now, valued as a very high medium of exchange, a precious metal to make jewelry and ornaments and even dining instruments for royalty. Incense or frankincense and amber resin that had a sweet smell when it was burned and used as perfume. Israel used it in ceremonially in sacrifices on the altar. And myrrh, a mixture of resin and gum and oil, and was used in incense and perfume for garments, but mostly to embalm a dead person, to take away the stench. They brought gold for a king. They brought frankincense for a priest. They brought myrrh, a symbol of suffering and death, and this was used in, when Jesus was buried. But the significance here is not the gifts. It's the worship. The significance here is the, is the worship. The true worship happens when your heart is transformed, and, and they are, are just full of, of adoration for Christ. Is your heart full for adoration to Christ? They do this. Verse 12 tells us they were, they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. Don't tell that guy where this baby is. Matthew tells of five revelatory dreams here in chapters one and two, four in this passage. And what it does is it highlights the supernatural character of the birth of Christ and the incarnation. God is doing this. And so they go to their own country by another way. They, they go longer than 900 miles this time. They depart, they Herod tries but fails to locate Jesus. The GPS isn't working. There's no snitch. The code is being enforced. We're not telling him. And God is ensuring that Herod and the wise men will never meet again. And then he has his parents protect him. Verse 13, when, when they departed, an angel of the Lord said to Joseph in a dream, Arise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him, to destroy him. Go to Egypt. Egypt. Turn of the first century, it was a Roman province that was outside of Herod's jurisdiction, a natural hiding place among fellow dispersed Jews, and maybe a safe house situation, a witness protection situation. You, you look back to, to as far back as Abraham, Egypt was a place that the people of God would go as a haven of refuge for Israel in difficulty or danger. Alexandria, Egypt, uh, according to Philosopher Philo, who lived there, had a million Jews living there. So he gets up and he takes the child and his mother by night and departs to Egypt. 
the border w- uh, would have been 80 miles from Bethlehem and going south and west and south again and, and then 50 mi- more miles to the Egyptian border and 200 plus miles and going to this Jewish community in Alexandria. And there he remains until the death of Herod. Herod died about 4 BC and uh, so the time in Egypt would have been brief, maybe, maybe weeks, maybe months, less than a year. And this was all to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. God is working it out to fulfill his word. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Out of Egypt, from Hosea 11.1. Hearkening back to when God led Egypt, God led Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. The Israel's sojourn in Egypt was this pictorial prophecy of what God would do. And Israel was always being reminded of God delivering them by bringing them out of Egypt. Just like you should remember your salvation testimony if you're a believer. But yearly, the Passover would be a reminder, the promise God provided the sacrificial lamb. And, and in Jesus' infancy is corresponding there now to Israel's history, that all the types fulfilled in Christ and identified by the New Testament writers. And this is God protecting Jesus so that he could die on a cross at Calvary. Herod thinks he's killing him, though. Verse 16, Herod, when he saw he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. Well, we'll take care of this. Gave orders to kill all the boys in that region who were two years old and under. Despicable. He figured it out. He did the math, and he goes, okay, anyone two years old and under that's a little baby boy, kill him. You know what he's doing? He is planning to make sure that the prophecy of Micah goes no further. He's taking matters into his own hands. He's going absolutely against God, and and he slaughters all the infants under two years old. Herod would do anything to protect his interests. Herod was in fear and morbid suspicion and could not allow a rival king, even a two-year-old. So he puts to death all the male children. What makes it more heinous in light of the fact that he knows he's trying to kill the Lord's anointed. That was the target. One of the most heinous, most despicable, egregious mass murders in history. Some people say that tens to hundreds of thousands of kids were killed. The Greek liturgy says 14,000. Syrian list says 64,000. The Coptics say 144,000. And they actually named the day. It was on December 29th, according to them. You got little Bethlehem, village of about 1,500 residents. So the numbers are greatly inflated here, but even if he had killed one baby, it would have been heinous. 1,500 residents and there would have been a few dozen babies, two and under, half of them female. When the Babylonian captivity was over, 123 men returned to Bethlehem, we know from Ezra. At this point in time, it was still a small village, 1,500 people living there. So you base it on the population and the birth rates and the infant death rates and estimate male children under age two, it would be 20 to 40 children. Now some people would say, wow, I guess it's not such a big deal. Wait a minute. Hold on a minute. That is a mass murder. That is an atrocity. 
The, now, here's another thing, and, and if you're aware of this, you might be going, oh, there's a gotcha. No extra biblical evidence uh, that the slaughter happened. There, uh, two books on Herod's life, and uh, Josephus doesn't say anything about it. What, how, do you, how do you answer that? Well, first of all, it happened because the Bible said it happened. We believe the word of God. But secondly, you have to look at it this way, and this is where it gets even, even worse for Herod and the evil of his ways. Killing 40 or so Hebrew children in an insignificant village wasn't his worst act of tyranny and cruelty, this mass murderer. People would have been like, well, that's nothing compared to all these other things he did. Infant boys massacred, a huge loss for the village. But, it, but in that moment, it wouldn't have stood out significantly as one of his worst things. His career was much worse. And sad to say, but people would have easily dismissed it. The place, the people, it's sick, it's sad, it's calloused. He would have been on the worst dictator's list. And the fact remains, what he did is fulfillment of prophecy. Fulfilled, verse 17, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 15. Another fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 18, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. That speaks of Israel's mourning at the time of the deportation to Babylon, captivity. That wailing prefigured this wailing uh, centuries earlier, Nebuchadnezzar had, in his army, had gathered captives uh, from Judah in Ramah before the exile to Babylon. And Jeremiah depicts Rachel, kind of representative of the mothers of Israel, mourning her children as they're being carried away. Mothers of Israel portrayed as, as Rachel, matriarchal figure to Israel. Her tomb was near Bethlehem. He's weeping for sons led into exile. And Matthew links the prophecy to this massacre of the innocent children. And God was safeguarding the safety of Christ. It was guaranteed. Herod's massacre was carried out. He thought he was killing Jesus. But the plan to kill the Messiah was thwarted. God intervened in another fulfillment of prophecy. God, God the Father saved his son to fulfill his promise of killing him to secure our salvation at the cross. And embedded in the Christmas story and the birth narrative of Christ is this dark story of loss and tragedy and tears and pain but also of providence. Sometimes we will say that the first martyr of Christianity was Stephen. It wasn't Stephen. It was these children killed in Bethlehem. Those are the first martyrs. Herod attempted to thwart God's plan and stop prophecy from being fulfilled. It, what he did, he added to the sin and misery in the world. Psalm 2 tells us, kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers gather together against the Lord and against his 
anointed, but we know that their fight is futile. We know that Christ is and will be victorious. Psalm 2 says, kings, be wise, be warned. Rulers of the earth, kiss the son, literally believe the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed. And Herod is not listening to anything like that, and he thinks he is killing Christ. And Christ again gets resettled. Verse 19, when Herod died, you know, when Herod died, they honored him because they were kind of forced to. They're putting up an honest headstone. It would have read, murdered wives, sons, children, and lived and died with no honor. A godless man. But it says, when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, because remember, Joseph had been told, you stay until I tell you. And it says, verse 20, rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Didn't say what city they were in, but they stayed in Egypt till after Herod dies, about March of 4 BC. An angel tells them, you return to Israel now. They were in Egypt probably less than a year. Joseph is wise, and in verse 22 it says, when he heard that Archelaus, that's the son of Herod the Great, Herod Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he's afraid to go there. He's thinking, well, that's not going to be a good idea. So being warned in a dream, he goes to Galilee. If you think of Herod, he wrote, he wrote and rewrote his will seven times. His kingdom was divided three ways when he died, given to his sons. 19-year-old Archelaus ruled Judea, Samaria, and Idumea, uh, and then the others ruled elsewhere, but Archelaus displayed the same cruelty and mercilessness of his father. The apple didn't fall far from the tree. Once he overreacted to an uprising in the temple at Passover, he sent troops to, and killed 3,000 pilgrims. He was a son of a wicked king compounding evil. So they stay away from him. Verse 23 tells us that they went to a city called Nazareth, so that, again, another Old Testament prophecy, uh, that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. This is interesting, though. He would be called a Nazarene. Here it's not a quote. It's just the prophets were saying. Nazareth was an obscure town 55 miles north of Jerusalem had a bad reputation, but it wasn't in the Old Testament. Can't find Nazareth in the Old Testament. But it fulfilled prophecy. What was it? Most likely a reference to the Hebrew word uh, nezer, which means branch, that in Isaiah 11:1, 1, that the branch of the Lord, uh, Jesus, would come. Nazarene was a slang for someone who lived in a remote, despised area who was despicable. Uh, Samson took a Nazarite vow as a judge of Israel, and like Samson, Jesus was consecrated to be the deliverer for his people. The, the founders of Nazareth uh, were from David's line. They gave it a messianic name, branch, connected the town with messianic hope, and became home to a believing remnant, went to Nazareth. He was protected. Nothing was going to stop God's plan. Nothing. No evil king, no prince, no pretender, no, no politician. What do we make of all of this? What do we take from all of this? I mean, the contrast couldn't be clearer between the wise men and Herod. And the wise men are following God's guidance joyfully. They're, they believe in the word of God. I mean, you, you, you look at, at the wise men, you're like, wow, I want to be like that. <laughs> believe the word of God seeking Jesus, recognizing his identity, humbly worshiping him, and obeying God, not man. 
It's a good resume. Wise men go 900 miles out of their way to worship Jesus. Herod couldn't be bothered to go seven miles. You need to go out of your way to worship Jesus. Wise men sincerely wanted to worship Jesus. Herod lied so that he could try to kill him. And I think it's very clear that your, your response to Jesus reveals your heart. You're either opposed to him or attracted to him. You're, you're the, like the magnet, either the, the back end of the magnet that repels or the, the front end that's, that attracts. It's fools reject God. And if you really think about it, all of us, apart from Christ, are Herods. They're, we're all little, little Herods or worse. We lie, we cheat, we steal to, to get what our flesh wants. Sin corrupts us, depravity destroys us. As Proverbs puts it, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Whoever trusts his own mind is a fool. But here's what we know in the gospel. Christ redeems what sin destroys. And the wise worship God. In 1 Chronicles 16 and Psalm 29, the same words, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. In Luke 4, Jesus said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In Romans, we're told, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The wise men believed the word of God. Herod rejected the word of God. Herod should have believed, but he rejected. He was threatened. He couldn't accept the reality that his kingdom was temporary and that Jesus is, is forever. But the wise men's eyes were open to the truth. They saw the truth. They were set free by the truth. I remember once when I was in college, soon after I came to faith in Jesus, I was standing at Long Beach State up on Upper Campus, and I was, started talking to a, a guy, and, and we found out we're both believers, and then he said, hey, pray for me, because I'm going to jump up on this uh, bench here and, and preach the gospel. Well, I just wanted to leave. I was shy and, and not going to jump on a bench and preach the gospel at that moment in time, and I thought, oh, no, I just got to find a way to leave here. Stand off at a distance and just watch, you know, what happens. And that very moment, I'm standing next to this guy. He's telling me he's about to get up there and preach. A friend of mine that I'd known since I was a kid comes walking up. And he says, take a look at this guy. And this guy is just like getting up there and starting to talk. And this guy's like, look at this jerk. You know, look at this idiot. Come on, what's, what's up with that guy? And I, there was my moment. Like, what was I going to do? I mean, recently I was dog walking with neighbors in the recent past and they said to me at one point they turned to me and they said wait you're not one of those that actually believes the bible are you <laughs> the world fights tooth and nail allowing no rivals and there's threats to their universe revolving like they have a little plastic globe that's going to get smashed and we have to not be afraid we have not to be living in fear of mentioning the gospel or mentioning truth in this moment in which we live. It's not hateful, it's not intolerant, it's not unloving to say in context appropriately with timing, with great care, with truth, focused on Christ, that it's wrong to redefine what a man or woman or marriage is. It's, it's loving to say abortion kills real people made in God's image. And every Christian needs to come to this conclusion that God wants your heart. 
every bit of it, every bit of your life, your hands, your feet, your mind, everything, and that you cannot separate your theology, what you believe in the Bible from life. It must shape the conversation, and it's not enough to say, well, I just don't believe that, because then you're rejecting the word of God. A lot of us might be late to the party, but it's time for Christians to start bringing things up. I've been noticing recently that unbelievers are not afraid to tell other unbelievers how wrong they are right now. The world says to hell with Jesus. Jesus took your sin upon himself so that you might have heaven, not hell. The world is incredulous at the thought that we would put our hope in a crucified man who was sent, who was preserved, who was protected for the moment when he would be compelled to go to the cross. Jesus said, for this I was born. Paul said, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners. And the crucified one rose and he conquered death to give life. That's unimaginable to the blinded. But if your eyes have been opened to the truth, you say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found, was blind, and now I see. Worship him. Offer gifts to the king. Whatever you do, do it from the heart, worshiping Christ. Do it in the name of Christ, who he is and what he does. God with us who saves. Don't be afraid. Nothing to fear. Every knee will bow one day and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there is mercy for repentant worshipers. God forgives your sin when you repent and run to him for mercy. And his compassion and his forgiveness and his grace changes your life. J.C. Ryle said, he knew what we were before conversion, wicked, guilty, defiled, yet he loved us. And he knows what we will be after conversion, weak, erring, frail, Yet, he loves us. Wise men give gifts appropriate for a king. Herod, the Herod-like track Jesus down and kill anybody in their path. We recoil, do we not, at Herod's atrocities? We recoil we would find ourselves saying, I would never. But yet I think it's fair to ask, where is your heart at? Have you ever? Are you refusing the word of God? You don't like it the way it was presented. You don't like the way it was packaged. It's not pleasing to you. Your pride says, no, I know better. You're no murderer, but maybe you're a character assassin. Maybe you're a a whisperer. Maybe you're opposing things because it doesn't fit your preconceived idea. Wise men acknowledge Christ's kingship. Herod denies Christ. Are you guilty 
of constructing a Christian facade around a life that's hollow and thin, and your heart is ignoring blatant sin in your life or others. You adopted all the popular views because your heart resonates with them when the last time I checked, our hearts are supposed to be transformed by the word of God, not by just what resonates with our hearts. Herod, if you think about Herod, he was far beyond Grinch. He was a godless pagan who hated Christ, and yet, not the first unbeliever to oppose Christ, wasn't the last. But what would be the biggest travesty is someone professing to know Christ who inadvertently or accidentally opposes Christ, like Peter setting his mind on Satan's interests and not God's and tells Jesus you're not going to the cross. It would be a travesty if a Christian fell prey to their lowest impulses and desires. It would be good if we would all ask God to free us from any Herod-like thoughts and deeds. Paul told the Thessalonians, pray for us. Pray for us that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly and be glorified, that we that we'd be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. God wants you to sincerely adore Christ, not have some sinister opposition to him. Yes, God can use wicked kings for his purposes, but he wants wicked kings to repent. And, and I think for you and I, we should let no shadow of a doubt remain where our allegiance lies. That you would tell your kids and your grandkids and your friends and your neighbors and everyone that you can tell, I love Jesus, I love his church, I love his mission, I love Jesus, the church, and all people. Herod fought the law and the law won. Everything opposed to Christ will fall. If you're not following Christ closely, you're opposing him. Jesus said, whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And Herod, Herod was consistent in his evil. He is the same Herod that examined Christ on the eve of his crucifixion. And obviously he wasn't connecting any dots because he thought he had killed the child. And he says, well, I'll, I'll take a shot at this guy because I've been wondering about him. And Luke 23 tells us that Herod and his soldiers treated Christ with contempt and mocked him. There was no fear of God in Herod's eyes. His pride knew better and he didn't learn and he judged and he was gripped by a sinister opposition. But if the Son shall make you free, Jesus said, you shall be free indeed. Go out of your way to worship Jesus. Show, show everyone where your allegiance lies. Cling to him, hope in him. Just don't cave to the pressure of the powerful or peers trying to prod you into doing sinful things. God said, light shall shine out of darkness and he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. There are no true rivals to Christ's throne. Many try. They will all fail. Christmas miracle is the wise men were led to Christ. They rejoiced, very happy, exceedingly, with great joy over Christ, over the work of God. And no one's gonna prevail over God's plans. You can stop worrying. You can stop, start worshiping. You can stop wondering. You can start witnessing. And just know there's no politician, no prince, no 
pretender that will foil God's plan in Christ. And, and realize this, there's, there's no present under your Christmas tree that's going to give you love, joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, goodness, fulfillment, answers, and blessings that the gospel does. Worship Jesus. Lord God, we thank you that we could be with your people today to reflect gospel promises. Thank you, Lord, that you will not be conquered, that you conquer all. Thank you, Lord, that we can rejoice exceedingly with great joy at your work in Christ. May we follow him, may we believe him, may we bow before him and honor him in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and we are going to close singing one more song together. Okay, before we go, just a couple quick announcements. We have baptisms after third hour today. 
Uh, and we're going to end the third hour, take a quick five-minute break, and come back in for the baptism service. So you won't be, if you're going to join it, you won't be interrupting the service, okay? But we're going to do that right after third hour. There's also a lunch on the plaza afterwards. Our El Medina family party, is, uh, where we're giving out lots of Christmas gifts to the community, will be from 2 to 5 p.m. today. Make sure you join us for that. And then Christmas Eve service at 4 p.m. on Christmas Eve. And by the way, there's 14 days left in the December devotional. You can still start it. If you don't know what it is, I don't know what to tell you. Um, But we're going to close with Jude 24 and 25, fitting words for us. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor.